Hello, welcome to the Beyond Blocks podcast, a podcast about PHP, Drupal open source and related software development topics. I'm Oliver Davis, and today I'm here with my guest, Nick Janitakis. How are you, Nick? Doing good. Extra good that you nailed my last name, so thanks. Well, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I've been consuming a lot of your content for a long time, so YouTube videos and blog posts and uh, running production podcasts that you used to do, so hopefully I should be able to get it near having listened to you say it enough times so um do you want to give it a little bit about share a little bit about yourself and what you do sure so i'm primarily a software developer i work with python ruby basically you know your typical full stack developer but lately i've been focusing a lot of time on just infrastructure stuff so working with docker deploying things to the cloud and you know just linux and ansible terraform some kubernetes all of that stuff has been going on for the last i don't know 10 years, depending on, you know, what tech was available at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. I think I know you for is probably your work on Docker, your courses on Docker, and um, just your YouTube sort of little short videos of uh, little tips and tricks and things that I come across and went, oh, I could uh, I could use that <laughs> in my project. So, yeah, I really appreciate the the content you're putting, putting out there as well. Um, yeah, no problem. And thanks for watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... One of the more recent ones I've been using a lot are uh, run files. I think that's definitely one I use a lot. Um, I started using, uh, I've done, done make files. I, I've done, and then, yeah, some of the issues where I make files, it didn't work the way I wanted it to and the way you pass arguments to it and, and everything. So I was looking for a way to solve that problem. And then that video appeared and I was like, oh, that's a really uh, nice way to solve that problem rather than writing something sort of really a bit more custom. So... Yeah, sort of adopted that idea as well and sort of ran, <laughs> ran with it and sort of expanded it a little bit to some of the projects. And yeah, it seems like a, a good fit. What's the other thing I've used? Um, Just. Just is the other thing I've, I've tried using a bit more recently, which is a bit makefile-ish, but um, it's not available in any sort of app repository or anything. So if I want to install it in a CI pipeline, I have to get it from their website first. Sometimes that fails. But the nice thing about the, the run files is just it's just a bash file right? there's no extra dependencies for it so it's right. it just works everywhere so that was one of the, the main things <laughs> that, I've, that i've done but um yeah you've done a lot how many videos have you done on your youtube channel i imagine it's quite a lot hmm. do you know it's a good question so the blog i think is somewhere around 500 published articles but i definitely didn't start making one video per blog post from the start so i would say if I would just guess, maybe at least 200 videos, maybe. I feel like that's about about right. Yeah. Some of them, I think, are quite sort of short. Not short as in, like, really sort of short, but a few minutes long, sort of explaining, like, a, a single sort of utility. So in some of them are more sort of longer, almost live stream sort of demo videos as well. Some of them maybe sort of 20, 30 minutes long, uh, if not longer. So, um, yeah, I think I've seen a lot of Vim, a lot of Tmux. I think I've seen one about... Um, command line focused development environments so how to use vim and tmx together i think that was that was a really good one and was uh, quite good for me um shaping out that's how i work pretty much so i think oh, i took quite a lot from that video personally nice yeah i'd say there's probably maybe 40 or 50 vim and tmx videos and yeah just a lot of stuff around just working on the command line various command line tools shell scripting like tips and tricks stuff like that but it's kind of funny because you're right like some of the videos are like I think my shortest video literally might be like two minutes long, 
but there are also some videos that are like literally like two and a half, three hours long, where it's just like live coding some crazy thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen you um, sort of maintaining Docker example projects or something, which essentially is like a live stream. It's, yeah, it's a few hours long, I think, and you're like going between one and then the next one, and then it's got about six of them in that video. So yeah, that was that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I think Docker's where the main sort of thing I know you're involved. Like, how did you get into software development and I guess then Docker by proxy later on. Hmm. So if we're going to go software development time, that's, uh, we're talking way back in the day. So that must have been around 1997, 1998. So back then I was just uh, in the middle of high school, basically graduating high school, actually. And I mean, this is the days where you're talking like GeoCities was the most popular uh, page out there to like make your own websites. And I don't even know if any of your listeners can even relate to that because it's like that long time ago. But it's like what came before MySpace and what came before like you know, other content platforms to post your own stuff. But, you know, I played a lot of video games back then, mainly like Quake and listened to a lot of like metal music and stuff like that. And I basically just wanted to make my own personal website to be like, oh, look at all the cool like music I listen to and, you know, other stuff like that. And that kind of just gave me like a really quick precursor into just HTML and just, yeah, putting together uh, table-based layouts because it was all the way back in the day. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We can spend probably a whole hour going over all of that, but it's like, the main, main, main thing was um, I used to play a lot of Quake. So Quake 3 was my game of choice. It's a first-person shooter. But yeah, one of my buddies was just graduating uh, university at the time. This maybe is like year 2000, give or take. And uh, we created a nice little gaming ladder together that allowed different teams to compete against each other. Because this game was, or Quake was, multiple ways to play it. But typically, you know, you could play like four versus four, like a team versus team type of game. So we created this like matching system, like a ladder system, where you can like challenge another team and uh, they can accept that challenge. And then it would be ranked on a ladder. And then you can have like wins and losses and different tournament stuff. So yeah, I ran that for a couple of years with him. And uh, that was my first real take into like, like actual programming. So like he did most of the programming in uh, ASP Classic all the way back then. <laughs> and I did most of the design there with the HTML and a little bit of uh, CSS back in the day. But yeah, that really like sparked my interest in just programming in general. And from there, it was like graduated high school, never went to university, um, worked on a lot of side projects, literally like rode my bike around town, like to try to find local work, like made, made websites back for people all the way back in the day when like the dot-com stuff was going on. So, you know, I can literally see like a van driving around with like some business, like a painting or roofing company and be like, hi, the way, by the way, my name is Nick. Do you need a website? And they're like, whoa, a website. That's cool. And it's like, here's like $80 million for like, you know, an HTML file, but it wasn't that crazy, but, uh, that's really how I got started though. Just doing contract work. And from there, it was just like a whole bunch of PHP uh, back then uh, is what I used as my primary language. But this is like PHP. I couldn't even tell you what version back then it was. Like whatever it was in the early 2000s, maybe version 4. I feel like version 4 was around for forever. Uh, it was a lot of that. Then a little bit of WordPress. And then that really transitioned into learning uh, Ruby on Rails. And this is probably like around, I mean, I'm skipping around a lot, but this is maybe around 2012, I want to say. Worked with Rails for a couple of years. Then I discovered Python and Flask. And I'm like, ooh, I want like, you know, uh, less opinions. Maybe it's better for me to work with a micro framework because then I can design my own custom like framework framework on top of that, and that's going to be so cool, right? And uh, that worked out really well, actually. So there was some pros and cons. You know, you can always make this case: do you want to go with some opinionated framework or not? Um, but I do like Python. I do like Ruby. It's funny because most people tend to only like one language or the other. You know, very polarizing. Or micro framework versus like a bigger framework like Rails where batteries are included. But yeah, I basically in parallel current day work with both of those technologies. And when it came to Docker, uh, I guess one of the biggest pain points or what led me to Docker initially was actually uh, getting Ruby up and running in a development environment. So, 
you know, I, I do use Linux a lot, but like my primary workstation right now, it's still like Windows 10. And back then I was using Windows 7 or whatever, but I would, I would run like a Linux virtual machine. Up until now we have WSL with Windows, which is basically a way to run Linux uh, in a Windows environment. But yeah, it was so not difficult and crazy, but there were so many steps to get your application set up. And it was like, well, you need to install the programming runtime, a specific version of it. And keep in mind, we're talking, you know, like 10 years ago almost. So like ASDF wasn't around and, you know, there was stuff like RBM and like RVM and like other stuff, uh, Ruby specific um, version managing tools for your runtime. But besides that though, it's like, okay, you got your programming uh, runtime set up on Windows or Linux or Mac OS, totally different. But you know how it is when it comes to web development, right? It's not even just like installing your application's dependencies, uh, you know, like a gem file or a package or, or, you know, requirements, a text file, a Python, you know, different third-party packages you need to install. Some of them require installing like C dependencies. So you have to have like certain header files available on your system, uh, like libpqdev if you've ever installed Postgres on, on a Debian-based server. But then it's like, okay, cool. That's your web app that's running. Nice. Then what about your database? Like what about Postgres or MySQL? What about Redis? What about Memcache? What about using uh, Elasticsearch or, you know, whatever stack that you happen to use. And now it's like, well, now you have to get Redis running on Windows, which doesn't even have a native port. So hopefully you're running a VM or you're running it inside WSL. And, uh, all these problems just keep coming around. Then it's like, well, cool. I've got my web application. I've got like a background worker. So in Python world, there's a Celery is a really popular choice just to run like background jobs. You know, with Rails, you have Sidekick. I don't know uh, what the PHP equivalent would be. Maybe for using Laravel, it probably has some like background process that you would run. But the idea there is like you have a web process, your worker process, you have your database process, you have your Redis process, maybe. That's a pretty standard web stack. And it's like, well, now you have to run all these things together in development. Like I just want to be able to up my project, run all of that. And it's like, well, wait, what if I have multiple projects running on my dev box with different versions? Like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Like, now I have two versions of Postgres and all this other stuff before you know it. It's like, you're spending hours trying to set all this stuff up. And now it's like, okay, maybe you, you released a SaaS app or something like that and it's getting successful. And now it's like, okay, cool. Time to actually like maybe hire a contract worker. Well, the contract worker is using Mac OS, but you're using Windows with like WSL. So it's like all those steps get thrown out the window and now they have to set it all up. And before you know it, it's like all that time is being wasted. Money as well, right? Because if you're hiring a contract worker, it's like, oh, maybe you paid them like four hours just to set up that box. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of money or a lot of time. And then it's like even deploying it to production. It's like now there's like a Linux environment and all that. It's like, Jesus Christ, like, can it actually be easier? Like, I really hope so. So Docker came along. And uh, at this point, I got started with Docker pretty early, but not like bleeding edge ground zero. I think I started at the end of 2014, which is still pretty early. I think it was Docker version 1.4. Um, yeah, around that time, it was way, way, way less mature than it is now, but it still worked really well. It's like you make this Docker file, you can encapsulate all of your uh, build environments that you need for your application there. And then you use something like Docker Compose to run your web application, your background worker, Postgres and Redis. You can individually version all these things. And like you literally just run Docker Compose build, Docker Compose up, and it works. And it works for you on Linux, for me on uh, Windows with WSL2, for you on Mac OS, and, and there you go. So yeah. It took a while to get there. Like Docker Compose, you know, wasn't really aimed at production back then, back in like 2015. And there were some pain points just around getting Docker running, even on Windows and Mac OS back then. They had tools like the Docker Toolbox, which was like a precursor to Docker Desktop. I don't know if anybody has uh, used Docker all the way back then, but it was a little bit painful, a little bit slow. But yeah, things nowadays, you know, we're talking uh, 2024 has gotten a lot better. So it's, it's a pretty nice environment on basically whatever base operating system that you have. I think it's definitely simpler to set up these have a Docker machine also being being a thing. So you have to yeah. set up like a yeah, this machine and then sort of run Docker on on, on that. Um yeah, I remember going and like starting 
developing on Windows back in the day, and it was running XAMPP or XAMPP, however you pronounce that, and then the Mac equivalent of MAMP, because there's no configuration files in any of those projects. So it's, it's up to how the individual person configures their local environment. And then you start working in a team, and everybody does it slightly differently. Or well, one person's running on Linux, one person's running on Windows, one person's running on um, Mac OS. And yeah, that's how inconsistencies happen and how bugs happen. Um, then, yeah, I think we moved into doing Vagrant and then maybe Puppet at that point. <laughs> Thinking back now a little while uh, a little while ago, um, Puppet, and then I think Ansible was the one. And then uh, Jeff King did a project called Drupal VM that was his own Ansible stack. So And then, yeah, sort of moved into Docker then later on, um, a bit later than yourself. But yeah, it's all about trying to solve that problem of consistency in, in environments, I think, usually around, as you said, versioning, really. It's like you know, if everybody needs to be running on the same version to make sure that you don't get bugs and everything works the way you expect it to work and have that the same between every person working on the project, but also, as you said, running on staging, running on production as well. Oh, yeah. And even when it comes to like deploying your app to production or any pre-prod environment that you'd like, it's kind of nice knowing that the Docker image that you are going to be running on that server I mean, you just pull it down and run it and it works. Now I'm assuming it works because it passed all your tests in CI and you've run it locally, et cetera, or whatever. But this idea of, you know, sending a build artifact up somewhere on the Docker hub or any Docker registry, if, you know, for watchers out there who might not be familiar with Docker, you know, it's not the same as like GitHub or something, but you can push a Docker image to a third party location and then you can pull that image down um, somewhere else, maybe on a server, on a contractor's box, whatever. But just having that image there to run you know, it just runs up in however long it takes to pull down and run. So th that's really nice. And it's a little bit different than, you know, in a pre-Docker world where you might run something like a pip install directly on your server or um, a bundle install with Ruby or maybe a composer install with PHP or something. And just like, I hope the dependencies install, like they might, they might not, but you never know. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually it would work, but you never know. But yeah, just having that confidence is super nice. Yeah, I think you said just that ease of onboarding people I guess either adding people to your existing project and it's like here's just this one command or two commands you need to run rather than here's a whole page of instructions uh, is obviously easier and better. But then also, yeah, as you said, if you're moving across different projects, you want to have, yeah, it will be easier to port that across from project A to project B rather than rewriting everything from scratch and having to reinstall. And I think the other the nice thing for me was it is totally not relying on something like, um, like what, what you said for the, uh, Python versions, but I know like MVM is the Node version manager, so you can have switch between different versions of Node. Um, not familiar if there's one particularly for PHP, um, not one that brings brings to mind anyway. But it's also nice to have something that's sort of sat outside something that was language or framework specific. So I was, I always quite like that approach. Yeah, I think nowadays there might be a tool called ASDF that tries to be or is a language uh, runtime manager for multiple languages like PHP, Python, Ruby, etc. But it's um it's nice. I actually use it locally for the one project that's not running inside of Docker that I have on my dev box. So I just need like a Node and, and Ruby environment there. But I'm a maniac too, like on my dev box. Well, not like crazy or something, but like, you know, I have like something like, like 140 side projects or something like that. And it's all sorts of different stuff, like Postgres versions from like six years ago, you know? And yeah, without Docker, I think it would be a lot more painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, HDF I've heard of, I haven't used so. It might be on my list of things to look at at some point. Uh, if it's not, I'll add it and I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> Probably when I can find two minutes between doing all the other things. <laughs> um, 
you're also on the Docker Captain program. Do you want to explain a bit of what that is and uh, what that entails? Sure. So Docker Captain program is something that Docker started, I don't know exactly what year, maybe it was 2016, 2017, around there. I feel like I may have been invited about one year after it started. But yeah, it was just an initiative that Docker started. Just, you know, they went around curating different content from different people who were just blogging about Docker, making videos about Docker, no strings attached. That that was me, basically. You know, I didn't ask for anything. I didn't even know about the Docker Captain's program until one day Docker emailed me. And they're like, hey, by the way, Nick, you know, we've looked at your content. Um, we feel like you're doing, you know, a service to the community around this stuff. We're just starting this Docker Captain's program where, you know, we're gathering a team of, uh, you know, Docker enthusiasts, let's say. And yeah, it's basically just... Uh, a little group of folks. I think there's actually quite a few now. Docker captains. There is like a link on Docker's page to get a list of them. But yeah, we basically just internally chat with Docker. We have like a private Slack channel where we have kind of a direct line to Docker's engineers and like product managers. And then um, maybe once or twice a month, we meet on like a one hour call where we just go over some, you know, ideas that could land into the next version of Docker or just give product feedback and stuff like that. And yeah, it's it's pretty nice, I must say. It's a really interesting idea. Yeah, it's do you have any sort of input into, as you said, you're making sort of suggestions, but I guess it's up to the actual Docker team then to go and sort of implement that or prioritize them. Right. A lot of times they're giving presentation or demos about like upcoming things that aren't available yet in Docker and are thinking about releasing it. So then we just give them feedback and we try it out and stuff like that. Some of the stuff is under NDA, some of it is not. But yeah, also besides that, we just give them just general feedback about using Docker. You know, where's the community going? Like, is there anything lacking in the documentation? Or maybe some features that could be in the Docker engine or Docker Compose stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you might hear from that if you're doing a video on your YouTube channel about Docker, maybe you'll get feedback from that, and then you can sort of funnel that up to the, uh, the Docker team and say, "Oh, somebody made you know this comment or this suggestion. Maybe that's that would be a good mm -hmm. good thing to to do." Yeah, and also I have like I have 99 problems, but Docker stickers is not one of them. So like I have <laughs> so many different Docker stickers, and you know even now. Wearing the Docker swag shirt. <laughs> but yeah, that was just a little perk from there. But you can actually buy these stuff like on Docker's website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, I'm trying to think as well. I'm sure I've seen videos with DockerCon or Docker conferences or something as well. Is that something that's also in the same sort of area organized by Docker? Is that more of a community organized thing? Uh, DockerCon, usually, yeah, it would be organized by Docker itself. I think last year, where was that? Maybe San Francisco or something like that. But yeah, that's a whole event just organized by Docker. And, you know, they do invite Docker captains to do that or give talks or just help maybe, I don't know, you know how sometimes at, at conferences they have um, like workshops and stuff. So sometimes we'll just donate some time there to help folks go through a workshop or be like a TA or teacher assistant for something like that. And then also just like, you know, spread the word about Docker. So I gave one talk at a Docker uh, conference. When was that one? Was that 2021? It's on my my website somewhere, link there. But yeah, that was fun. That was just like a 45 minute video where I just walked through, yeah, one of those example Docker apps that I uh, currently set up there. That one was for Flask, but there are other ones for Django, Rails, Node, and Phoenix as well. One day PHP Laravel, but that's not like something I deal with a lot, but it's been a request. Yeah, I've seen your example projects on GitHub and that's, I've, just, I've seen the video where you're sort of going through and usually I think you just pick one and show something as an example, but I'm sure there's one where you're like maintaining six projects at the same go in, in different team sessions and things. Um, but yeah, I've taken that idea. I think I've got I've done a Drupal base one. I've done um, a couple of Drupal ones actually. I've got like the main sort of vanilla installation, and then there's a few distributions of it. There's one that's um, commerce, Drupal commerce kickstart. 
I've done one for uh, a district called Local Gov, which is used a lot by UK councils, UK island councils. Um, so they're slightly different because the commerce one needs more extensions and things like PHP's BC Math extension, um, which the other ones don't need. So let's do a little bit of tinkering to get that to work. Again, it's nice to, nice to do that inside a Docker container than it is to do to install all those things um, locally every time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I've done. I think I've done a Peach. I think I've done a Symphony one. I think I've done a Laravel one as well. But I don't necessarily maintain them those ones as much. But probably should. So um, yeah, I think, I think you're inspired by your Phoenix and Flask ones as well. So yeah, there's probably a lot of similarities if you were to look at it, look at them, see how they how they set up. Oh, absolutely. Like if you took a you know ten thousand foot overview and like just opened up all the projects side by side, like tiled on like a big monitor. You'd be really surprised at how similar like those Docker files and Docker Compose files really are. I mean, at some points, it's maybe like five lines get changed. It's like really that simple. I'm not going to say simple, but it's like it's that much um, consistency between each tech stack. And I don't know, maybe some weird takeaway from there is like I like to gravitate towards technologies that tend to follow me around. So like with Docker, it doesn't matter if I'm, you know, writing a Rails app or uh, Symfony or Drupal or Flask or whatever, or Go, it could be compiled language as well. Like the doc underlying Docker knowledge will stick with me. So I'm always yeah. like, I always, you know, that makes me warm inside when I see that stuff. Yeah, there's a few sort of Docker wrappers, essentially. I think it's some quite opinionated wrappers that get used in, certainly in the Drupal community, but I think also in some of the other PHP communities as well. Um, yeah, and yeah, I sort of use those and a few other places I work tend to have their preference or certain client projects will already be set up to work with one of them. Um, I usually found I was, taking more things away than I was trying to add. So it was, it was a bit too bulky and a bit too opinionated for me. Um, so I was like, okay, I could learn this tool's version of how to integrate with Docker, or I could just learn Docker myself. And that was more appealing to me to sort of, to learn the underlying tool. But then if I was going to make like a, like a PHP library or a Go package or something, I'm not going to use something that has to have a database or has to, you know, has this sort of typical sort of Drupal development stack in it. Um, I'd rather build, be able to build something from the ground up that I want rather than try and remove things that I don't want from something. So I think that's why I ended up moving just to vanilla Docker, Docker Compose at one point. Nice. And did you learn Docker like individually before you stepped up and started using Docker Compose? Like you just ran the Docker commands manually? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I just remember when I think like Docker build and things, but Compose was definitely easier because then you didn't have to start worrying about networking. I think that's probably the main thing. So they already knew how to speak to, like different containers knew how to speak to each other. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the main um, benefit I found from it. And then started to maybe look at, I tend to use platforms as service options in production, or agents that we tend to have done. So not always taking them and then running them in, in production usually, but I have done some things, including my own projects, and it, it works just fine again. So that was really good. But I remember there being... Of discussions around now, oh, you shouldn't run Docker composing production, and that's what Kubernetes or something was for, or whatever it was at the time. I can't remember. So, um, mm. I have seen other people end up advocating for potentially yeah, running composing in production or running containers in production. I think, um, yourself and I think Matthew Setter did, um, some, some courses or a book around Docker composing production that, um, I went and, and read and reread and took a lot from as well. Nice. 
Yeah, I'm a huge fan of running Docker Compose in production because I really do think there is a large classification of applications that you can just run on one server, throw it up on DigitalOcean, Linode, like Hetzner, wherever you want to put it, AWS. And uh, yeah, you can just run everything on one server, spend your 20 bucks or 40 bucks a month, have your whole stack there and you're good to go. Maybe you can use the managed database if you want, if your cloud provider supports that one. And uh, even Docker Compose is interesting too, because you know lately they have features like Docker Compose profiles where you can actually control which services you want to run when you run a Docker Compose up. So like you can actually still have Docker Compose powering everything, but you can have your web application running on server one and like your background worker running on server two. And you can have the same exact configuration for all of them um, on both of those servers and just tweak a single environment variable uh, to dictate which one is going to run the web and which one will run the worker. And then, yeah, your worker will just pick things off the queue and your web application will just serve requests. Mm. I think that can, that can go a really long ways. Yeah, so compose underscore profiles variable, I think. Is, is that, I think yeah. Yeah, I mm -hmm. found that off your post actually at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was doing using um, compose override patterns was you had a separate override file and then you were adding more things to it so when i saw that i was like yeah that could be a really good um yeah way to do that in, instead and yeah that was that was really interesting um some of my projects use um php php fpm images and some one or two use like the apache image so apache is baked into php so I don't need web server in that case so that's one way of um not having it, so I can just take it out from the compose profiles part. Right. Yeah. yeah, and just to like touch base on override files, like they're still good to use for certain things, but yeah, I used them a lot in the past until I discovered profiles and like that solved like, I don't know, 99% of my problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was I using an override file for recently? Um, maybe it's adding some port forwarding. I think I tend to use typically tend to use a traffic proxy locally. So whichever container whichever project i'm running i can just go to something.localhost and, and do it that way some projects are domain or url specific so i can't yeah it's nice to be able to say this one is running on you know, food.localhost or bar.localhost or something and have it have it work that way um yeah so, so often i do need to maybe that isn't working or somebody needs to maybe maybe it's, yeah or they don't have it so yeah uh port forward or something in there I'm sure there was something else I did recently, but I can't remember now. So it'll come back to me later on, probably. <laughs> as soon as we finish doing recording, I'm sure it'll go, oh yeah, that's uh, that's what it was. For yeah. sure. It's going to be 1.38 a.m. You're going to be like, ah, oh, man, that 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 was the one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, we'll see. We'll see. But, um, anything interesting sort of coming down from uh, potentially the next couple of versions of Docker or Docker Compose that you can share or talk about? You said some of it is NDA, but anything that uh, might be useful? Uh, I will not confirm nor deny. So there are like, you know, I hate to be like, oh, I know something you don't know, but I really like, yeah, I can't just throw that out on a podcast. So you're going to have to stay tuned for Docker's mm -hmm. blogs or release notes on certain things. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Uh, just curious. Yeah, I've been using, I think, um, I'll be using more recently some of the things, I think um, named anchors, I think it's something I kind of picked up probably from one of your posts about how to sort of have separate, to separate things out, I think is probably the best um, ways of organizing a compose file. That's probably the last big change I've probably made to, to the way I structure the compose files. Um, I probably haven't kept up to date with them for a while. Um, I used to have version 2.4 or something at the top of my 
demo files and then sort of got rid of that a little while ago. Uh, when Compose 2 came out and it moved from Docker Dash Compose to Space Compose, I think, a little while ago. So there's probably some new features in there I've not come across yet. So I should probably do some digging and find out and see what's been added in the newer versions. Yeah, that was a fun change because like the Docker API spec also has like a V1, a V2, and a V3. But then there's also the Docker Compose binary, which is a V1 and a V2. And yeah, like you mentioned, when you access it without a space, you're using Docker Compose V2, which has now been built in as like a Docker plugin. Whereas Docker Dash Compose V1, the binary version, you know, that was something you would typically either curl down or you can like pip install. It was it was a Python application, but now it's just um, a Go app written uh, as a Docker plugin, which is nice because now you can just, you know, even if like you were to app install Docker, like using their installation script, like their convenience script, it will set everything up for you. So you don't even need to worry about installing Compose. Like it's just there and ready to go. Yes, yeah, get.docker.com, I think is the script yeah. up when you point. Yeah, so you literally sort of set everything up from scratch, doesn't it? I think. Mm -hmm. Although it is kind of funny. So I think setting it up from scratch, like under DevBox, is fine. But you know, just touching base on maybe just deploying Docker a little bit. Yeah. I still do use tools like Ansible to set up a server beforehand. So I tend to deploy my applications to either Debian or Ubuntu LTS, depending on like what just came out more recently type of thing. So I kind of switch between both. But yeah, I have a whole bunch of different Ansible roles and playbooks to set that server up where, you know, even though my application is running in Docker, there are components of the server that are like unrelated to Docker, you know, like setting up an SSH user that's a non-root user, configuring SSH to, you know, disallow root logins and password-based logins, because ideally you want to log in over SSH, you know, setting up firewalls and installing Docker itself and uh, little things like that. You know, there's like, I don't know, maybe 15 little distinct things that you can do that are just like system related that you maybe want to configure. Like maybe you're going to configure journal D or, you know, just to, to deal with your Docker logs there instead of just having them get dumped out to a JSON file that disappear when a container gets removed. Yeah, so I'd be a big fan of Ansible um, just for doing, say, local dev setup earlier on, but also server setups. Um, and Jeff Gerling used to do a lot of Drupal work. So release a lot of different Ansible roles for it. Uh, yeah, I think most things you to look for, and then oh yeah, Jeff's already written written a role <laughs> for that. So usually my go to go to one to look at those, and I've written written a few myself. Um, don't use it as much now, but maybe I'll have to again so use it again. I'm using it for my um, mostly local my local environment setup as well, doing things like dot file management. Um, but I've started moving most of that stuff over to Nix and uh, Home Manager recently, so that's been quite interesting. Um, yeah, Ansible is definitely still there in my toolbox if I need it for something, um, both from a provisioning perspective, but also deployments. I've done um, talks on Antistrano, which is a Capistrano port to Ansible, which is used that on some client projects for a while. So that was oh, nice. really good as well. Yeah, and just and, speaking of Jeff, like that guy is super prolific when it comes to mm -hmm. the Ansible community. And man, I remember this is like super off topic, but you know, he has a blog and his own website and stuff. And I remember he got like LASIK eye surgery a couple of years ago and he wrote about that experience and he was talking about getting like his cornea flaps, like scalped open and stuff. It was crazy detail. Yeah. I'm not sure I've read that blog post, but um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I do like, uh, to try to think what last time I actually met Jeff in person. Must have been at a DrupalCon event or something, but I have to. So oh. shout, shout out to Jeff's corneas. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so you've mentioned about working in software. We do um, 
some teaching as as well. So I know you've done some courses. I've done some of your, of your courses as well. Um, how did you start making courses and just YouTube videos and the blog as well? Yeah, so that all started, I would say, around 2015, maybe. It was, yeah, it was about, I don't know, maybe six months after I started working with Docker. And like, I was so excited just to, yeah, just to understand what Docker was doing and stuff like that. So one of my first courses was uh, a Docker course based on like how to get Docker set up in development and also deployed to production. But actually my very, very first course was building a SaaS app with Flask. And that was more just focused very hardcore on Flask itself, Python, you know, developing the application. It did use Docker too, but it didn't um, like deploy the applications, very focused on building it. But yeah, that kind of, I really just stumbled into making video courses. I mean, I was doing contract work all the time and I was building different SaaS apps for different people. And I noticed patterns, right? It's like, well, you know, the authentication password based is not that much different between these implementations. Oh, well, if someone has different like plans to subscribe to a uh, Stripe payment, it's like, I can kind of use that same code across multiple projects, you know, tweak a couple little things and it's basically uh, good to go. And it's like, well, you know, maybe like a, an about page or a contact page or the admin page, all these things were really, really not super generic, but generic enough for me to be like, well, if I had this little starter application, I can actually build a SaaS app and get the, you know, skeleton of it up and running, really accept payments, really have like a robust user authentication system, admin dashboard, et cetera, uh, in like no time flat. So I'm like, well, what if I just made a video course about that? Like teaching people how to literally build a SaaS app with Flask. I mean, I, I just took that name directly and, um, you know, I, I threw that up on Kickstarter with zero audience, no blog, no nothing. And I'm like, I don't know, this is crazy. Like I've seen people on different course platforms, you know, allegedly making so much money. I'm like, I mean, could I actually do this with nothing? And that Kickstarter, I put it on for 30 days. I don't know if you're familiar with Kickstarter, uh, like how long a campaign can run for. So Kickstarter is basically a crowdsourcing platform for you to introduce a product to the market and they can just like fund your project. Like you might want to give $20 to fund it or something or maybe more or whatever. And you would get some perks, usually like stickers or like some shout out or whatever you want to do, right? And um, I knew nothing about any of that, but somehow the project got funded, but it got funded in the most ridiculous way possible where... It tanked hard for like 29 days, like three people donated, um, you know, like maybe a hundred dollars total to, I think I put, what did I put? I can't even remember. It was like either 30,000 or 14,000 as the, um, like the mark I wanted to hit. And like at the very end, last day, this Australian businessman comes in, swoops in and like donates all of it to, to fill out the rest of it. And, um, you know, I appreciate everybody else who donated as well, but it was insane. I just woke up that morning. I'm like, okay, well, it failed. I'm still going to do the course anyways. And it's like, like what just happened? And I'm like, okay, time to actually learn how to make a video course now uh, because I was still going to make the course anyways, maybe a little bit slower. But yeah, right after that Kickstarter ended, I just went to town. Like I started developing out the app. I started my own blog, started blogging about the progress of like, hey, these are going to be the features of blah, blah, blah. Here's some screenshots. Like, let me know what you think. And yeah, I mean, in like three months or something like that, I ended up recording all the videos for it, uh, the project itself, put it up there, and then just started selling it. And um, it weirdly enough did well enough that I'm like, wow, okay, so this is the thing I'm going to be doing now. And then I like made the Docker course right after that, like with a two-month break, and then another Docker course after that. And then I don't know what happened. I made another Docker course after that. <laughs> um, but like, then I don't know. It It's so weird. I don't, I don't know if you ever had this problem too, but at some point, like you get sort of, I don't know, comfortable or content with where you're at. And I'm like, man, I still have so many ideas to do so many different courses. Like I can make like 15 courses, like right now, if I just slam them out over the next like five years or something. But um, I try so hard and like some of the courses are so big where it feels like, man, like I'm pretty good at breaking down problems and stuff, but 
the motivation to do them. Um, I want to do them, but like somehow they don't get done. So I always chip away at them a little bit, but then it's like, mm, they never get completed, but they're there in my mind. Hmm. Yeah. I've got a list somewhere of all just like ideas of things. I've got a big list to just daily email list. Um, just like, so the ideas like come just bring to my head every so often working on the, some project for joining this call. And I think there were three things popped into my head whilst I was doing that. So I was like, oh, I'll write those down before I forget. And some of those will turn into maybe like, oh, I'll go do a, a book about this or an ebook or maybe a course or something. And just trying to talk about doing um, an ebook or something for a, for a while. And just um, longer, longer than a while, actually. And yeah, it's just trying to find the time sort of to do it and to put all the bits together. So I have released it as an email course now and then i'll sort of build on that and start small and, and go from there so yeah, yeah. getting ideas good... isn't the problem it's just the time i think <laughs> yeah in general yeah and especially like I, I love the idea of an email course too because it's like it's not like it's basic but it's like reasonably easy to modify later like you can always add one more email into the sequence or you know swap in a new section with something new and uh yeah one issue with the video courses is it's really hard to keep them up to date so yeah. like you can incrementally add new content at the end, like a bonus section where it's like, oh, now we're going to update this and add this. But like inlining those updates, like in the middle of the course, it's really tricky too, because on video, you might be like, okay, you know, in the next lesson, we're going to do blah, 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 blah. You say that at the end of the previous lesson. So, but if you inject a new lesson in there, then it's like, it's pointing to the wrong lesson where you reference like, oh yeah, go to lesson 182 or something, but now 183 or whatever, 182 is a different one. So yeah. But I mean, I really honestly do enjoy a lot the experience of just creating the course, um, you know, getting it out there, helping folks learn whatever they want to learn. Uh, even like the customer support, the feedback, that's almost been like, not my favorite part, but like, I really enjoy when people write in and just, you know, ask a question or something like yeah. certain people, I feel like would get annoyed if people just constantly ask you questions. But for me, it's like a gift. It's like someone took the time out to not just purchase the course, but actually engage with it, you know, watch it or whatever. And now they have a question. If, you know, if they have a, like a big question about something, you know, depending on what skill level they're at, like maybe they overlooked something, but it's also like, you know, feedback for you to be like, oh, that's actually a really good point. Like maybe I should like inject a little tooltip in there or, you know, next time yeah. when I update the lesson, do it this way instead. Yeah, I've had a few of those. Um, an email, of course, the nice thing is obviously go for my email address so people could just press reply and then send me an email with a question for that episode or for that lesson. And uh, yeah, it's good to get say some engagement and little things. Well, maybe maybe this wasn't that clear, you know, as, as the reader or whatever, I've uh, had a few of those things where, um, you know, as I was just doing PHP local web server, it was like the simplest thing to get it to get it running. So just running PHP unit tests. But um, yeah, people are like, oh, I'm using this setup or that setup and um, we have to change, you know, if they're doing a Docker-based thing, we have to use the service name as the PHP unit thing. So it knows how to connect and make the HTTP requests the right place. So um, yeah, doing a bit of debugging with people but um, yeah, it's it's good to get that engagement and helping people along the way through through the process as well. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's like this for you, but also like, so the way I did my first courses, and I wouldn't do it like this nowadays, but the very first like three of them, you know, like I actually scripted them out word for word. I never, I'm really bad at outlining. Like I never make a table of contents ahead of time and kind of just flesh it out. I always go the other way around where like I will start with word one, like the blah, 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 blah. 300,000 words later, it's like now I have the course 
And like, while I'm writing it, then I'm like making the table of contents and like refactoring things as I go. So it's like, I'll take two steps forward, half a step back, two steps forward, half a step back, like just changing things around and until I make sure I cover all the stuff that I want to cover. But, mm -hmm. and this also applies just to writing blog posts or making YouTube videos. Like every YouTube video now for the past, like 200 of them, it's like unscripted. You know, I just flip the recorder on and just chat like this, whatever about some topic that I put together like shortly before the video. But one, one really nice thing about that is that like, it almost forces you or it does force you to really, really learn something in more depth like you can't really half-ass it if you're going to be putting together a video and well at least i wouldn't want to you know so it's like i go the extra mile to like really understand something uh, more than i would have if i didn't make that blog post or, or course or whatever yeah i did something similar um when i was doing when drupal 8 came out and it was quite different from seven previous versions so object-oriented code everywhere and yeah very different to what, you know, what was uh, done in Drupal 7. So um, it was the Drupal Camp London conference that was coming up and I'd done a few talks beforehand uh, already. And um, I thought, well, yeah, I'll do a, an introduction to Drupal 8 module development and I'll submit that as a session. And then because it got accepted and I was like, right, now I need to learn how to do Drupal 8 module development or enough, at least I could um, give a talk about it. So it was a good, good reason for me to spend some time on doing that for myself so I could then you know teach it a little bit to others during doing that session nice when you give that talk did you end up writing a lot of like private show notes for yourself or even scripted out ahead of time or no um i tend not to write too much it's like word for word but um usually i'll write a lot of the content out and build maybe something first and then maybe sort of do the slides around it and then always go back and i'm always tweaking speaker notes all the time every time i give a talk i'm always going back and rereading the, the notes and usually I'll get there and they won't show up or the lap I did one and the laptop was on literally the other end of the room and we had a so I was like I couldn't see the notes anyway by the time I got there so um usually that that happens but it's okay by the time I've done it a couple of times it's usually uh it's usually okay but um, just getting a lot of people will go oh I can't give a presentation or a talk unless I'm an expert in the thing which uh, I don't think that's ever true so um, yeah, no way. I feel like if you can, yeah, if you're, you don't even need to be that much more knowledgeable than the audience. It's like, yeah, if you can just offer one or two nuggets of something useful, like people will appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do some mentoring on a boot camp um, recently. So I've, I've mentored the last two cohorts or people on the last two cohorts and um, signed to do the next one again. And um, we're also at Hack Day um, on the past weekend. So they were building. Um, come up with an idea and building an app. So they were doing um, React and, and Node, that's pretty much what they did on the course mainly. Um, planning and then building something and doing a presentation at the end of the day to, to the, the, the group or the large group. So we split what they'd all split into squads to begin with and then presented to everybody else at the end of the day. And uh, I was like, yeah, what I'd love to see then is somebody maybe give a talk at a local meetup about this is my experience on a boot camp. This is what I've learned. Um, then we did this, you know, this is my final project, bit of a talk about that. And then also like hackathon and this is what we did. And they already got half the presentation because they did it at the, at the hackathon. So, um, yeah, it'd be nice to see again, don't need to be an expert, just no bit, not even know more than the next person. Cause your, everyone's experience is different, I think. And, you know, the way that they learn things is different and they can probably talk about things in a slightly different way than anybody else. So, yeah, no, that. That is a great point because I've learned so much from just 
I don't want to like demean and be like a beginner developer or whatever, but certain people just ask questions that you might not even think is a possible question to ask. And then you get to be, you know, learn, learn, learn from that. So yeah, that's great. And yeah, I do think in general, just giving talks or presentations or whatever. I mean, I really wish I did it more. I mean, I guess it would be easy to turn on like a live stream on YouTube and start doing it more. But I remember like my very first talk, like I ended up scripting it out word for word. And it was like a virtual one like this, you know, over Zoom. And like, I just kept the script like right next to the eyeline of where the webcam was. So you can't really tell I was reading from it, but I was just going through the slides. I'm like, you know, this is a command line. We're going to use script. We're going to pipe that into this. And we're going to do like, it was just like reading it straight from a script. I mean, it, it sort of felt natural, I guess. Like no one even detected that, but yeah, I think just having a skill, like developing that skill to be able to give just an ad hoc conversation about something that you're interested in is so valuable. And like that type of communication goes so far in just like, I don't know, getting contract work or being better at doing interviews or, you know, communicating with a team or giving a presentation at work, like, or a conference or whatever. Yeah. There's like huge value in that stuff. Mm. Yeah. So much of it, of, of the role in the industry is not just about the technical side of things, but, you know, if you want to use Docker in your project and you need to sort of almost sell that to somebody, go why you want to use it and, you know, put across some of the sort of advantages of things, you know, you need to buy in from people and that comes from, having conversations with people who sort of explain why this is good and not just yes technically we can add it and, and do whatever but if you want to add something new to your sort of stack for whatever reason you need to be able to get buy-in from other people and that comes down to communication again oh yeah if you're working at like a little bit bigger of an org or something you can't just go to the cto and be like oh but it's but it's cool and not using mm -hmm. it is like not cool like shiny. this is not going to work yeah shiny <laughs> yeah i think it's so um video of yours today today or um yesterday maybe talking about about this i think about um customer support and and some of the, the sort of I say soft skills is not always the, not always the, the right term i like but um because yeah you you do a lot of, sort of not just the vim and the team and the technical ones but you do some um the other side of things as well Oh yeah. Yeah. That for me, that was today's video. So like every Tuesday I throw out a blog post in a video, usually like during the morning EST hours, like between whatever, seven or nine, but yeah, this week's video was just, um, yeah, just reminding how important customer support is and just like knowing your customer. And I mean, it's like, I don't want to get into a whole entire thing, but it's like, uh, yeah, I recently bought like um, a security camera for one of my friends and the website that I got it from, it was like super, like really nice. Like they had really good videos describing exactly how it works. Like, you know, every angle you can see it at the different uh, audio qualities of the microphone on the camera. And then like their customer support helped me a lot because I had some questions because I'm not like a hardware, like professional security installer, you know, of, of cameras. I know enough about tech, like just like most developers, you know, can fix uh, your mom's printer or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I understand like wires connect to this thing and that thing. But yeah, anyways, like their support was really cool and I got it and it all, all worked in the end. So, so I just wanted to write about that experience. It wasn't solicited, no sponsorship, no affiliate kickbacks or anything. It was just like a nice experience. That yeah. could generally follow you back too, to whatever service you're selling. A good reminder of just like knowing your customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, most recent episode that I think I've put out or just recorded um, was talking about um, somebody who runs a SaaS product and like, I asked him, I said, well, what's, you know, if you want to start a SaaS, what would you do? And he'd said about support and like just give really good customer support to people. So yeah, that was his, that was his takeaway from that. Oh yeah. But yeah. I there's think. certain things. Sorry. Or my takeaway from what he said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That stuff goes really far. Like if you have a good customer service experience, like I'm not going to forget that company probably, I'm not going to say the rest of my life, but it's like, it's been imprinted and you know, people can have that imprint on your stuff as well. And I, you know, I just love the idea of doing things that don't scale, you know? So like, if you only 
do like a hundred orders a month or something like that, you can offer a different level of support to someone who does like, you know, 8 million of them per month because the 8 million per month company is like, you're just customer 6,032,004. And it's like, now you're going to be dealing with like long customer support times, like blah, blah, blah. Whereas, you know, with a, a nice experience, like a personal one, I mean, you can jump literally like on a live chat with someone and screen share with them on like one hour notice if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's that, it's that personal touch, isn't it? I think it's, you know, getting, you get to know the, the people, um, the flip side of that is, as well as I know when I'm speaking to potential clients and customers, like then if you work with me, you're working with me and not working with, um, you know, somebody else. And we might not just, you know, pass the work off to, you know, a junior or a subcontractor or an offshore team or something, you know, if you're, like, if you're working with me, then you're working with me. So that's, I think an advantage, <laughs> I think. Oh, when... yeah. That's really cool. Um, so anything else you wanted to cover while, while we're here? Uh, well, we're here. Let's see. Well, do you have any questions about anything? Just like we talked a little bit about Docker, programming history a little bit, soft skills that touched on that, touched on content creation. Um, yeah, command line stuff a little bit with the run script. I mean, I don't know if anybody, well, now I don't know if you should edit this part out, but you know, like the run script, like if anyone wasn't aware of like how that works, yeah, it's basically just a little shell script that would be in our project. And you can write your shell functions there to do little shortcuts so that you can just literally run like run space and then whatever shortcut you want to do. Maybe it opens up a prompt in a Docker container. You know, maybe it um, outputs some logs that you like. So it's like, you know, just a convenient way for you to have shortcuts to different functions you run for that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the same as what I'm doing, like Composer or like Drush is the Drupal shell utility, the CLI for Drupal. So instead of running Docker Compose exec PHP, then the bins up there and just get yeah, run, 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 drush. I think that usually I'll uh, run composer and it just, yeah, shortens that down quite a lot. Um, oh, yeah, because those Docker uh, compose commands they can get pretty long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you start having to pass different arguments to different things as well. And yeah, they, so yeah, that's a thing I've used a lot. And as I say, it's just the nice thing is it's just bash, there's no no other dependencies on it as well. So it just works in a CI pipeline, it works everywhere. So I've run the same commands in CI that I do run locally. So Again, because yeah. consistency, going back to that again. The only times you need to be a little bit careful is that, uh, you know, like Mac OS installs a very, very old version of Bash by default. It's like version 3.2 due to some like GPL license conflict or whatever. So they've moved on to start defaulting to Z shell and stuff. So you have to be careful to write your shell scripts in a way where you would maybe try to make them compatible with Mac OS's 3.2. Mm. That's interesting. I think... Um... Shell check is a thing that someone covered us before. Is that does that help solve that problem? Is that something mm -hmm. slightly different? Yeah, that definitely will point you in the right direction of like any you know ways that you can alternatively do things. Usually, yeah, it will get you like ninety percent of the way there. Oh, cool. yeah, and shell check is a really nice linter for shell scripts. So mm -hmm. if you like getting yelled out by tools, then uh, shell check is something you like <laughs> in a good way, yeah. like the highest confident are confident. Yeah, I think I've got to set up things as a as a diagnostic tool in my Neovium setup, I think. So yeah, it'll, if I'm in a, a bash script or something, it will put those diagnostics in line in the same way as it would if I was doing um, PHP stand or static analysis inside a PHP file um, or coding style um, violations. It would, yeah, do that in a, in a shell script and tells me, like, wrap that in quotes so that works and, and do the, <laughs> or, or whatever the thing is I need to do. Um, mm -hmm. Or yeah, you're doing doing uh, an, an array wrong or something. There's always something I always do in a bash file. I always type it slightly wrong the first time, and it always reminds me to to do it. So it's cool. 
there we go. I will put a link to some of these things in the episode notes as well. Um, it's been a really great conversation. We've covered a lot of different topics. Um, where can people find you online, Nick? So my main site is nickjanetakis.com. That's N-I-C-K-J-A-N-E-T-A-K-I-S.com. And if you go to the about page or there or the blog page, you know, there's hundreds of posts there. But on the about page, links to everything else. It's, you know, there's like courses there and Twitter profile and GitHub profile, stuff like that. Cool. Um, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening to the Beyond Blockers podcast. I'm Oliver Davis.